Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Adam Reilly. I serve as one of the pastors here at Maranatha, and so thankful to be worshiping with you and excited to dive back into our current series entitled Out of Darkness, where we're looking at the life of Job in the Old Testament. Uh, before I, I dive in, um, we just sang about how we are alive in Christ. And one of the, the best ways, I think, as a, as a ministry, as the church, we do that is we celebrate baptism. And so next, uh, this coming week on Monday night, tomorrow night, we've got a baptism class at 6.30. You can just meet right out here in the foyer. Um, so if you're here this morning and you have given your life to Jesus and you've never been obedient to call, the call of baptism, we would ask you, we would invite you to consider that, to prayerfully consider that. Uh, the baptism service will be on February the 23rd and there will be one right here in this service. So we'd love to celebrate your new life in Jesus Christ with you. Um, in case you haven't noticed, we are in the middle of winter here in Akron, all right? Now, I know we had some sun this morning, praise the Lord, all right? We saw the sun. It's been a while, amen? Um, but it's the middle of winter, right? And so it's short days, it's long nights, it gets dark early here in Northeast Ohio. I mean, it's difficult, all right, to live in this part of the world um, during these months of our year, all right? Sometimes depression kind of sets in and, and you're just struggling to see kind of joy and, and the life that, that God has for you because it's just kind of a dark and dreary season that we live in, all right? It, it affects me, I'm sure, to a certain extent, it affects you. Um, I wonder this morning, as you look over your life and you kind of consider where you've been and the seasons of life you've walked through, have you ever had a year where it just felt like you had four seasons of winter? You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's hard. It, it's dark at times. There's, there's suffering. There's hardship. There are things just seem just to stack up over and over and over again. And if you're honest, it's like, yeah, this year, it's felt like four seasons of winter. It's been a challenge. I think that's the, the reality of sometimes the world that we live in. Uh, you think of from a, a world perspective, kind of a global perspective, there are things that happen in the world that it's hard for us to make sense of. You think of the whole Kobe Bryant situation, right? Two Sundays ago, he gets in a helicopter with his daughter and some other people, and it crashes. Tragic loss. You think of what's happening in China right now with the coronavirus and people having to flee the country because of this deadly virus that's attacking people, right? It's hard. There are seasons, there are difficulties, there are hardships in life. Right, but hardship and suffering doesn't just happen outside or out there. If we're honest this morning, many times suffering and hardship and darkness, it, it comes knocking on our door. Things like death of a loved one or disease, things like cancer and other forms of sickness. And so it's not just out there, many times it's in here, broken relationships, finances, maybe it's consequences for decisions or sinful actions that we've taken. Maybe it's addiction, depression, anxiety. Thinking broadly, it's spiritual attack where there is an enemy and his name is Satan and he wants us to get off track with where God wants us to be in our lives. The reality of suffering, the darkness of this world, the suffering that we endure and what I love about the story of Job, now why it's not pronounced Job, I do not know, all right? 
If, if I were to pronounce it, if I just look at this, it looks like Job to me. Right, but his name is Job, okay? If you're new to God's word, um, maybe the easiest way for you to find Job chapter 2 is just to go to Google, type in Job chapter 2 Bible, and it'll come up, okay? But we want you to have a copy of God's word in front of you, all right? Copy of God's word. You want to see this as we're walking through the text this morning. We're going to be in Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. While you're turning there, I want to remind us of what is the purpose of this book. Why is it recorded for us in Scripture? Why did God see it so important for us to read this and learn from this book of the Bible? I want to give us a few things to think about first. It's to challenge us. How so? It's to challenge the lie that our sin is always the cause of suffering. It's not. Because as you... If you were here last week, we learned that Job is a blameless man. He's upright. He's a godly man. And so the suffering that, that happens to him, this, the hardship that he goes through, it is unjust. It's not right. But all, a lot of times we come to seasons of suffering and we automatically think, well, there must be some kind of sin in my life for me to be going through this. Now, that may be true. There may be times when that is the reality but that's not always the case. And we see that in the life of Job. I also believe that Job is to test our relationship with God. Because what's happening here in Job chapter 1 and 2 is there's a conversation going on between God and Satan. We'll get to this in a moment, but what Satan is doing is he is accusing Job of not really loving God. Saying things like, Job, you just, you just love God because all the stuff that he has given to you, the possessions, the family, the blessings of life. And so I believe this book tests our love for God. Do we really love God? Or do we just love the blessings and the things that come along with the relationship with God? I believe it's to show us that God is the ruler of the universe. And there are just some things that we will fail to comprehend that our human, small human minds cannot completely wrap around because God is powerful and he is the ruler of the universe. And I believe it's to remind us that God's goodness is very present even in seasons of suffering. He's good. His will is right. It's perfect. And he is a God worth following. Last week we learned, if you were here, if not, just to catch you up to speed, in Job's ch Job chapter 1, 1 through 5, we saw Job's character. He's blameless, he's upright, he's one who feared God and turned away from evil, the text tells us. Then in Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 22, we see Job's first test, all right, the test that he will endure. And so Satan attacks Job's family and his possessions. He loses all of his livestock. He loses most of his servants. And he loses 10 children in Job chapter 1. Darkness. Hardship. But look at Job chapter 1, verse 21 with me for a moment. I want you to see Job's response to all of this. Job says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
he responds with worship. He responds faithfully with integrity and obedience, even amidst some of the greatest loss that humanity can endure. Job is a man of upright character who genuinely loves God. Which brings us to our passage today. Job chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Here we see Job's second test. Second test. I want to break it down this way. Here's the first section that we'll look at this morning. The first section is this. We see Satan's accusation. Satan's accusation in verses 1 through 6. If you want to follow along with me. It says this. Again, there was a day when the sons of God, in other words, angels, right, heavenly beings, came to present themselves before the Lord. Right? So imagine a council. They're gathering together, they're coming before God, and they're presenting themselves before him in heaven. And it says, and Satan, uh, the original language is adversary or enemy, and Satan also came along among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, real quick, if we had time, we'd go back to Job chapter 1. And what you would see is that the conversation is almost identical to what God and Satan are discussing in chapters 1 and 2. All right? Parallel in what is going on. It says, And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it, and the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Right, this is high praise for Job here. Have you considered my servant? God claims him. Right, this is my son. This is my servant. He is my child. Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth. We heard this last week. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. Same thing. This is what God said of Job before the first test. But then he adds this to the equation. God says, he, being Job, still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him, destroy him without reason. He's saying, Job, even after this severe test, after Satan attacks his family, his possessions, his livestock, everything that he had in a worldly sense is attacked. And he holds fast to his faith and he continues on the road of integrity. Well, then Satan answers the Lord and says, skin for skin. What's he talking about? What does this mean? He goes on to say that all that a man has, he will give for his life. In other words, um, Satan is saying this. Yeah, we took his, you know, I took his, uh, his stuff, the things that he's you know, passionate about or the things that he enjoys, possession, people, the things of this earth. But the, the argument that Satan will now make is, but you didn't touch him, right? We, my attack was not on him personally. And so his argument is if his body is affected, if he himself is affected, then he will curse you, God. Again, accusations here. Satan is accusing Job of not truly loving God. That he's only in it for himself. See what Satan goes on to say. 
It says, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. Verse 6. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. Right? This is the ultimate test of faith, is it not? Right? Because Satan is going to attack the health of Job. Right? And, and God allows this to happen, but says, only spare his life. Right? This is a test. Satan will attack the faith of Job. And here in a moment, we'll see how he responds to this suffering. But before we do that, I want to talk about Satan's accusation. Because this is one of those uh, character qualities of our enemy, Satan. As we look at scripture, what we find is that Satan, as one pastor put it, is the accuser who attacks your heart with accusations. Let me say that again. The accuser who attacks your heart with accusations. We see this in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. It's on the screen. It says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser, talking about Satan, our enemy, of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before the Lord. Satan is the accuser of brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. And again, what accusation is Satan bringing to Job? It's very simple. He is accusing Job of his devotion only being for selfish reasons. The livestock. Job was a very wealthy man in his day. He had many servants, much livestock, right? All kinds of possessions. And Satan is basically saying, that Job's devotion to God is self-centered. And so what I want us to see here is that when Satan talks to us, because he does, there's those whispers of lies that enter our minds and our hearts. When Satan talks to us, he's always accusing, right? He's saying, you don't really love God. You're not really worthy of God. Right? Yeah, you go to church and maybe you're involved in some Christian things, but you don't really love God. He's blessed you in a lot of ways. You've experienced many blessings and possessions and different things in this world. But if all of that were stripped away, if all of that were not there, you wouldn't love him. You wouldn't love him. When Satan talks to us, he always accuses. Or maybe I put this in kind of earthly, relational perspective. It would, it would be like I say, like, I love my wife, Lydia. And I do, all right? But what if the context or the content of my love was only that she cooks me really good food, right? Which she does that, all right? She cooks me really good food, therefore I love her. Or she washes my laundry, which she does, and I'm thankful for that. Therefore, I love her. Or she takes care of my children. Or all the things that my wife provides for me, if those were the content of my love for her, then what is my love? Self-centered. It's about me. No, I'm called to love her because I love her. 
God has provided me with a loving spouse and I would die for her. I want to sacrifice and love her no matter what. I think many times we lose sight of this when it comes to our relationship with God. We start focusing on all the things that we have in Christ and at the end of the day, we're not just loving him for who he is, the savior of our lives. When Satan talks to us, he always accuses. So here's the application. In suffering, we silence the accuser with scripture. Because right? again, this is the reality of the world we live in. And so how do we silence those accusations? How do we silence his voice in our lives and, and keep it from taking us down into the depths of darkness? How do we do that? It's with God's word. It's from knowing and studying and memorizing the word of God. It's from prayer and a true relationship with God, having a, a, a true salvation in the Lord Jesus and so in those moments where you feel the accusations of the enemy, where you hear the accusatory voice of Satan, we silence that with scripture. But maybe you ask this question, well, what's the difference between Satan's accusation and the Holy Spirit's conviction? Because right? sometimes it's hard to distinguish between those two voices in our minds as believers. I want to draw out of just a few things. First, Satan... He accuses and he condemns. Satan accuses and condemns. That is not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, affirms and commends. Right? He affirms us. He lifts us. He commends us to the Father. He's our helper. He's our comfort. Yes, there is the conviction of the Lord. When we find ourselves in a path, on a path that we're not supposed to be on, when we make decisions that are outside of God's word, there is that gracious conviction from the Lord. Satan accuses, Holy Spirit affirms. Satan condemns, the Holy Spirit commends. You could say it this way, that condemnation, worldly grief, and despair are all attacks of the enemy, while conviction, godly grief, repentance, and salvation are gifts from God. I love what one pastor had to say. He said this, Satan knows your name, but he calls you by your sin. Think about that. As a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, Satan knows our names, but he calls us by our sin. Why? Because he wants us to stay in despair. He wants us to stay in worldly grief, to be so beaten down by our sin, so broken over what has happened that we never lift up from the ashes like we see in the life of Job and live the life that God has called us to. So Satan, he, he, he knows our name, but he's calling us by our sin. That's how he sees us. But the God that we serve is so much different, right? God knows your sin. It's the opposite. God knows your sin, he knows it, but he calls you by name. He is our father. He loves us as his children. He no longer looks down from heaven and sees us as sinner, broken, messed up, never get it right. No, if you are a follower of Christ, if you have given your life to him, God sees you as his beloved child in whom he is well pleased. The righteousness of Christ covers you and you're now, and you're now seen as the righteousness of Jesus, not the brokenness of sin. 
How do we silence the accusations of the accuser? We fight it with scripture. Right, we hide God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against God. We think of the account when Jesus is in the desert with Satan and, and, and Satan is tempting him. How did Jesus fight those temptations? How did Jesus fight those accusations? With scripture. For it is written that man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We silence the accusations of the accuser with scripture. First thing we see in the passage is this. Satan is the accuser. All right, Satan is accusing here. Second thing we see is this. Satan's assault. Satan's attack, his assault in verses 7 through 9. It says this. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. I just want to mention this. Who struck Job? Satan did. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores. In other words, boils all over his body. It's a severe skin disease. We don't know exactly what kind of disease he was inflicted with, but it was some severe skin disease where there was overwhelming pain. And as you'll find later in the story of Job, it resulted in a hideous appearance to where people didn't want to have any association with him because his sores were so hideous. So he is struck with loathsome sores. From the sole of his foot, it says, to the crown of his head. And it says he took a piece of broken pottery, which was to scrape himself while he sat in ashes. So you get the sense here that he's scraping his sores. I don't know if you've ever had like, uh, like a skin disease of some sort. Maybe it's um, I've had poison ivy a lot. It seems like if I just like breathe around it, I get it. All right, but there's that moment, like if you have poison ivy or poison oak, you just want to rake your skin, right? Like it, it's just so bad. You know, you shouldn't because it'll spread. Or, or maybe it's shingles, right? I've heard that shingles is a really painful kind of skin illness, right? We don't know what the illness is, but it's from his feet to the top of his head. He is covered in sores, And the only way that he thinks that he can get out of this situation to get some of this pain out is to scrape himself with broken pieces of pottery. He's isolated, he's rejected, he is cast out from society. Job is in darkness. And then, verse nine, to make matters worse, it says that his wife said to him, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Notice the connection with verses nine and three. Right? Notice how parallel her words are with God's. God says in verse 3 that Job still holds fast to his integrity, and now his own wife is questioning this reality in his life. Do you still hold fast to your integrity? She says. And then she says, curse God and die. Notice the connection between verse 5 and verse 9. So she is arguing against what God has said, And she is arguing for what Satan has predicted. Because Satan says, he will curse you to your face in verse 5. He's a man of integrity. Will he stand under the assault of the enemy here in verses 7 through 9? So let's talk about how Satan attacks Job. The first way that Satan attacks Job here in this passage is his health. Right, he goes from what I would probably understand as the picture of health. 
Right? He's a healthy guy. Right? He's a manual labor worker. He's got livestock and cattle and all kinds of things going on around him. He is a healthy man. And in a moment, he is stricken with a deadly skin disease. Right? Where he is completely and utterly miserable. So, Satan attacks his health. Um, to make matters worse, he goes on, because of this skin disease, what happens as a result is Satan attacks Job's reputation. Again, Job was a public figure. He was a leader in the community. He was a wealthy man during his day. And in a moment, because of this skin disease, I believe he was cast to the outskirts of society. He was isolated and rejected, and people didn't want to be around him. And so he loses his reputation. He moves from his luxurious home, remember, wealthy man, to sitting in a garbage dump in ashes and misery. We also see that Satan attacks Job's closest relationship. Right? He goes from what we would understand as a good marriage to having now um, a broken marriage where he feels alienated and even rejected by his closest confidant and closest friend, his wife. Um, when, I, when I think about this in verse 9 and the dynamics of Job and his wife, um, I think of conversations or I will say uh, discussions that I've had with my own wife. Right? I say discussions because Christians, we don't fight. Right? Right? Can I get an amen? Right, we just have discussions. We don't fight. We don't argue. We just discuss things. And I remember, it's been a couple years ago, we were um, on vacation of all places, right? Like, who can have discussions on vacation, right? Well, we, we did. And so I remember it was like the first night of vacation. And, and when we go on vacation, a lot of times it's like we drive all night kind of thing. And so by the time we get there, I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm hungry, all right? I'm worn out. And so, like, I'm just not in a good mood, Okay. Honesty at Marinette, I'm not in a good mood, okay? And that was the reality of this first day of vacation. And so I remember, like, I got through the day, and I'm laying down to go to sleep at night, and, and I'm still in this funk. I'm in this bad mood, right? And nothing's going to get me out of this kind of thing. And I remember, like it was yesterday, I, I laid down, I rolled over, and I said these words. They're very dramatic. I'll, I'll let you know. I said this, well, we better get some sleep because tomorrow's going to be worse. You know, it was just like this. Like, how much more Debbie Downer could I be? I'm like, I'm on vacation. Like, got to go to sleep. Tomorrow's going to be worse, you know, kind of thing. And I'm going to be a little vulnerable here, okay? <laughs> I don't know what led this. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit. But after I said those words, I farted. <laughs> and it was like my... <laughs> My wife, Lydia, she starts laughing, all right, because of just the irony, the tension of this situation. She starts laughing, and at first I'm like, what are you laughing about? You know, why? And then I start laughing, and before we know it, like, both of us are belly laughing, like, just, like, all-out laughing. And, and I'll tell you, that turned the corner for the entire, the, the entire vacation. It did. So what's the principle? Um, men... Fart around your wife. <laughs> the question is this. As you think about your closest relationships, you know, so if you're not, if you're not married in here, that's okay, right? 
I understand, like, some of you are middle schoolers, high schoolers, college kids, right? You're, you're a single adult, like, so not everything goes through the lens of, like, marriage and family. But think of the closest relationships that you have. Are you, am I, allowing the devil to have a foothold in our relationships? Where we allow our attitude or um, our decisions or the words that we say to have a negative impact on those that we love most. And before we give Job's wife too much of a hard kind of look, let's remember she's grieving too. Job's not the only one who lost 10 children, seven boys and three daughters. Job's wife was mom to those people. And let's not forget that Job's wife was watching her husband go through misery and now is inflicted with all kinds of sores. And I think the truth that comes out of this text is that when we experience grief and hardship and darkness in life, we all grieve differently. I mean, you can't get around the fact that Job's wife pleads the case of what Satan is saying. But let's be honest. She's hurting too. Let's be honest. She's hurting. Job's hurting. They're processing that grief differently. But her comments left Job feeling alienated from his own wife. Make me think of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. It says this. Again, he's our enemy. He's our, uh, our accuser. It says, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. All right, he wants to devour you in those moments of darkness and grief. Don't let him. Here's the application. In suffering, we grieve that which was lost. Because one of the wrong ways to deal with grieving or hardship or loss is trying to avoid it, self-medicate it, run from it, not deal with it. So in seasons of suffering, it is appropriate and right and good to truly, honestly grieve that which was lost. If it was a relationship, we're called to grieve that in a God-honoring way. Right? If it's the loss of a loved one, we grieve their loss in a God-honoring way. We should be grieving, being honest and self-aware with how we're feeling. That might involve talking with someone, seeing a counselor, talking with a pastor, opening up to somebody. But we need to process the things that we're feeling. It is right and good to grieve that which was lost. We see this in the life of Job. Look back at verse 20 of chapter one. I want to see you to see how Job responds to this hardship. It says, then Job arose and he tore his robe. This is after all of his possessions, his children, everything is taken from him. It says that he tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground. He's grieving. He's being honest with his emotions and his feelings. He's willing to go to those depths to figure out what is going on in his soul. And then we see here in this passage that he took broken pottery and he scraped his sores and he sat in ashes. All of these things that we have read about are in the context of the Old Testament, the visible expressions of mourning, grieving, and loss. So in seasons of suffering, we ought to grieve 
We aren't given away as the world is to kind of a, an endless cycle of grief because we have the hope of Jesus Christ, but we have to be honest with our emotions, honest with our feelings, and grieve the things that we have lost. Satan accuses, Satan assaults, and last thing we see in the passage is we see Job's contentment. His contentment. We see his faith. We see his integrity. We see that amidst everything that has happened in Job's life, he does not fall. He does not fall captive to what has come against him. Look at verse 10. It says, but he said to her, so Job is now responding to his wife's comment. He says, you speak as one of the foolish women who speak. Now, I want to emphasize a word, and that's the word as. Um, he didn't call her a fool. He said, you're speaking as one of the fools. And all the husbands are like, he said the same thing, right? What she heard is Job called wife a fool, okay? All right, but he does say, you speak like or as one of the foolish women who would speak. And here's what I want to focus on. He goes on to say, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Or the word is trouble, right? Notice the contrasting words here, right? He says, shouldn't we receive both good and trouble from the Lord. You see his humility. You see his submission to the Lord's will. You see his honest trust and faithfulness to his God even during the darkest season of his life. It's humble submission. He trusts God. He makes this confident confession of the goodness of God in one of the most difficult and dark seasons of a life. Reminds me of the word portion. Portion. We all have a portion. Right? The cup that God has given to us. It's that God-given, um, that, that God-given lot in life that we have been given. The portion that we have. That God has allowed us to take on. It's our portion. Shouldn't we receive both good and trouble from God, Job says. It reminds me of a time when I was in student ministry. This has been years ago. We used to do a 30-hour fast uh, with middle school students. It was great. Uh, maybe some of you were, are in here that took part in that. Uh, but for 30 hours, students would fast from food uh, while we were learning about God and being involved in some different activities and missions projects and different things. But the end of the 30-hour fast would always involve a meal, right, where we would all come together and celebrate God's goodness and we would dig into this big meal because we were so hungry. I remember one of the first times we did this for the meal, I thought this would be a really good idea. I'm going to feed them rice and beans, right? And so after 30 hours, they're middle school students, like they're, they're hungry, they're a little bit angry, like they're not maybe like having the best mindset or attitude and we roll out the carts and there's literally rice beans to eat, <laughs> all right? I thought it was a great idea. They didn't like it so much, all right? It's kind of cruel. Right, I did it for a reason, but looking back, I probably should have just rolled out the pepperoni pizza and said, here you go, enjoy, all right? 
But many times, don't we respond kind of like, like those students responded? Like they're blaming me, like how could you do this, Adam? Like after all we've done for you, right? Or they're, they're complaining because of what the food is in front of them. But let's be honest, many times we respond to God in a similar fashion. God has given us our portion. He knows what we can handle. He knows that, that he will take care of us no matter what our lives entail. But we find ourselves blaming and complaining and criticizing and rejecting what God has for us. So are we blaming, complaining about our portion? Again, I love Job's response. Look at verses 20 and 21 again from chapter 1. Just, again, I want you to see this. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and then did what? Worshipped. He worshipped. And he goes on to say, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's a beautiful picture of what God is calling us to in our seasons of darkness. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 4. It says this, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Do we have this one? We do not have this one. All right, it's where, it's where the Apostle Paul says, I have learned in every situation, every circumstance, in, in everything, I've learned the secret of being content. Whether that's death or life, Suffering, persecution, hardship, calamity, whatever it might be, I've learned the secret of being content. This week in Job chapter, uh, in, in last week in, in chapter 1, verse 22, it says, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. In all this, he did not sin with his lips. So here's the application for us today In suffering, we faithfully trust in the Lord. That's the call, that's the challenge, that you and I, as we walk through seasons of darkness, as we experience suffering in life, we pray that God would empower us to faithfully trust in the Lord. Because I believe contentment is learning the principle of accepting whatever portion God has given to you. It reminds me of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? He, is, he is hours, just moments before he will go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And he's having this moment in the garden where he's talking with his heavenly father and he says, not my will, God, but your will be done. He's pleading with the father to remove the cup of suffering and wrath from him. But God, the son, Jesus, trusts the father's will and is willing to go through all that pain and suffering and death. Why? so that you and I could have salvation. And that as we come to know him as Savior and Lord, we would bring glory to our Father in heaven. In suffering, we faithfully trust in the Lord. Now this all leads to my main point. As we look at this passage, I believe verse 10 gives us our main point, and that's this. Real contentment is only found in a real friendship with God. Real contentment, real satisfaction in life, true joy, eternal hope, all of the things that are available to us in a relationship with Jesus. Like, that only happens when we know him as our Savior and our Lord. Think of all that Job lost. Think of all the pain and the hardship he went through. Yet he worships God, and the text tells us that he did 
not sin. Here's how I want to end. I want to draw out some differences between Satan and Jesus. And what we learn from God's word is that Satan is always uh, lesser than the God that we serve. Jesus is greater. It says this in 1 John 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So think about some of the pictures that we have in God's word about Satan and Jesus. We'll start with this one. Satan is a liar. Jesus is the truth. Satan is the destroyer. Jesus is the creator. Satan is a thief. Jesus is our shepherd. Satan is a snake. Jesus is the savior. Satan is a killer. Jesus is the giver of life. Satan hates you. Jesus loves you. Satan is our adversary. Jesus is our friend. Satan is a deceiver. Jesus is our deliverer. Satan is the prince of darkness. Jesus is the prince of peace. Satan is the tempter. Jesus is our teacher. Satan is evil. Jesus is eternally good. Satan is a murderer. Jesus is our healer. Satan is a roaring lion. Jesus is the lion of Judah. Satan is the accuser. Jesus is our advocate. He's our advocate. So if you want to experience real contentment in life, I'm here to tell you that only is found in a relationship with God, and that's through Jesus Christ, the Son. Suffering is part of life. The question for all of us is this, how will we respond to seasons of suffering? Will we respond like Job who said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. May we respond in a worshipful, trusting, faithful way, no matter what life throws at us. This morning, I want to introduce you to some of my friends, Tyler and Shannon Jones. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with them and do a video testimony. Um, and what they share is their, their grief journey, uh, the, the story that God has been writing in their life and the pain, the hardship, the grief that they've walked through. And so I want you to sit back and, and hear their story and how they have processed and clung to their faith during an incredibly difficult time of life. So check this out. 